out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we we certainly are. Thank you, Jim. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I was the last time I checked. And as always, we like to play the finest in indie pop. We also love a special guest. And this week, uh, we have gone off-road slightly because I've caught up with Hank Wangford to find out more about life, love, poetry... Plus, plus also life as a doctor, a GP, and a um, <clears throat> career in um, music, country and western, in fact. I know. Check it all out. Um, after a very long conversation to get to know each other, as we do in the world of showbiz, we started to get into the interesting part of the interview. Um, and also to say that he has a new album that's come out this year, or coming out 2020. That's not the album, that's the year. Holy Holy, which is going to be his troublesome 10th album. It's been six years since his double album of waltzes, Save Me the Waltz. Um, And this is the interview. And uh, basically I got to that point where we were talking about a book that had come out many decades ago called The Sun in the East, which documented the East Anglian fairs and festivals of the 70s and almost into the 80s. And there was a photograph, um, I think it's on page 91, of Hank. Wangford with Susie Cruz in front of him. This was his first ever live performance in 1976 in Bungie. And um, we were talking about that and this was Hank's reply. But I've also included a bit of my conversation. Hank, save this was, interview, was a fantastic please. photograph of you in one of those iconic books, The Sun in the East, the Norfolk oh, and yeah. Suffolk Fairs. And then on page 91, there is a picture of Hank Wang- Wangford. First time out, Bungie Mayfair. Mayfair. Yeah. 1976, photographed by S. Wolfenden. Yeah, yeah, and there you are with a rather attractive young lady in front of you. With with a, um, yes, looking rather like she could be a can-can dancer. Now look, what, can you remember that, that occasion? Because it says first time out, I'm thinking musically, not sexually. So what what was the sort of moment? Um... If it was 76, it was the last uh, Barsham Fair. Right. Unless it was, was it Bungie? It said Bungie Mayfair. Bungie Mayfair, Bungie Horse Fair. Yes, I think it was, because I think the yes. last... the last That was the last yep, Barsham that was, was the about... first time out, yeah. yeah and so... that, that was the May Horse Fair, and it was, I do remember it very well. Um, and I'd only kind of thought of the name Hank... Wangford had come to me not much more than a month before, maybe two months before the fair. Yeah. Um, and Sandra Bell, who edited the Waveney Clarion, oh, which yes. was the the sort of uh, was the journal yeah. of that group of people. I mean, we were all part of the kind of hippie movement to the country. Yes. You know, uh, at that time in the seventies. Um, a lot of people in town would, would um, pass the joint and then say, oh, man, I've got to get to the country, go and get my head together. Yes. Right. <laughs> so we were all going out to the country to get our heads together. Um, and, and that's what I did. I mean, I still continued working as a doc. So I was uh, two days a week. I'd go down into London and work in the clinic. And that would, you know, I'd earn enough to make a living 
Um, but I, the, the other five days of the week, I lived up in in Suffolk. Yes. Okay. So, um, so that's seventy six. So at that stage, it really was your first time on stage. It Did, was right um, because they said, um, "Oh, they said, well, why doesn't Hank do a uh, do a gig at the, at the May Horse Fair?" Um, and I said, I can't go on stage with a name as monumentally stupid as Hank Wangford. I said, yeah, of course you can. So, so I did. Uh, and it was, it was just the bare bones of a, a band. Uh, there was me. Um, there was a guitar player. Um, there was a drummer. Um, and two can-can girls. Right. And the can-can girls were organised by... Uh, Susie, Susie, uh, that, yes, the famous Susie, that's right. Who, who um, uh, was known as Susie Cruz in yes. the band, um, and she was uh, she was wonderful. She was a, a great character, um, a very um, I mean, you'd say ballsy if she were a bloke. <laughs> she just didn't she didn't didn't care, and she was a sculptress, and she played tenor sax very basically but still honked away on it well, yes. um, and sang and danced uh, and she organised the uh, the can-can uh, girls um, and she worked as a stripper as well nice, um, you've got to get the work and so she did you know, she, she could do a lot of things um, she also um, as a sculptress she made um, a lot of stuff out of fiberglass and she made a whole bunch of fiberglass fiberglass um pompadours like you know uh elvis style haircuts uh which we would put on when we ran uh, very early on we would run a thing called um the conway twitty lookalike contest and we'd put a picture of conway twitty up um on stage and he 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 was a man of many haircuts uh, and the particular haircut we liked was what I called the Roman centurion look, which was heavily brill creamed and sort of uh, pompadoured up at the front uh, in that sort of style, like the early Elvis style. As nice. Well. And um, and we get all the uh, the hippie boys to come up uh, for the contest, and we'd offer them a, a huge jar of brill cream, which they smear all over their long hair, because uh, the prize was. A Night with Susie Cruz. Right? So you can imagine a lot of blokes would rush up, dip their hands into the brew cream, smack it on their heads in a desperate attempt to get a night with Susie Cruz. Meantime, she'd have all these uh, um, fake haircuts made out of fiberglass around the back of the stage. Uh, and then if one of the people who came up and smeared his hair with brew cream, if she fancied him, she'd take him away for a night. But if she didn't fancy any of them, uh, we would then come back out all wearing our fake pompadours and one of us would win. Nice. Right. So she would be safe for that night uh, amid crowd, you know, screams of fake and fix <laughs> and all that. Yes. Um, Excellent. Uh, so, yes, that was the very first gig. In fact, a guy called Paul Fitzgerald, who Legend. you may or may not yes, know. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, he he stepped up. He was in the audience, and he became the bass player in a band, and very much kind of my right hand man. 
Nice, good um, one. So look, so at that stage, because crikey, you've got a lot here, haven't you? Because most people who yeah. who start forming in bands, and the ones, and I've been interviewing people for a long time, normally, you know, they're in their late teens, early 20s, you know, they're going through that phase, we're going to be rock stars, you know, and normally it lasts yeah. a very short period of time, normally five years, the great five-year narrative. And and the, most of the bands, I confess, you know, are from the 80s, you know, the indie scene, so yeah. they, they, they get a sound... John Peel gives it a spin, they get a John Peel session. The first album, things grow good. The honeymoon phase, second album, mm, not so good. And then they break up. Yeah. But you, obviously, you were born in Wangford, weren't you? This is this is a fact. No, I wasn't. No, you weren't no, fat. I mean, That's Hank, that. <laughs> Hank in his legend was born in Wangford. Right. Where were you born? Hank's legend was he was born in Wangford. He God. was born... Um, I, I was born in Hertfordshire. Right, OK. Um, in reality, I was born in 1940 um, during the Blitz. Uh, and my mum was uh, was uh, evacuated out because uh, the word had got round that the Luftwaffe were going to um, completely wipe uh, London off the map. So she was evacuated out to uh, a stately home that was owned by a Nazi um, called uh, Brockett Hall. Oh, nice. Um, uh, which is in Wellin, Old Wellin. And it's a very, very fine old mansion. Uh, and I think Queen Victoria, I know Queen Victoria, used to go out there and stay and be a guest of Lord Melbourne, who was one of her prime ministers, who, who whose home it was. And it has a wonderful checker bath. Anyway... Uh, in in the 30s and 40s, it belonged to a very nasty man called uh, Lord Brockett, who um, was one of those British aristos who thought that Hitler was a jolly good chap. Yes. Um, not just because he, he he built great autobahns, but he was just he had he had the right idea about those Jews. Um, uh, and in fact, in 1939. The year before I was born, he and his mate, the Duke of Buccleuch, uh, went off to Berlin in April to celebrate their mate Adolf's 50th birthday. Yeah. Uh, so, serious Nazi. Anyway, he gave his home over to be a maternity home when the war broke out because he knew that the government were going to requisition it anyway uh, and probably stick a load of squaddies with their nasty, muddy boots in. And rather than have that, he thought, well, let's appear magnanimous and um, philanthropic uh, and um, offer it as a, as a maternity home. So lots of people got born there, and I was one of the people who was born there. And I was born on the night when they didn't, you know, as usual, British intelligence um, was wrong. And uh, it wasn't London that the Luftwaffe wiped out. It was the night they wiped out Coventry. Right. Uh... Bad mistake. So the night they were wiping out Coventry, I was born, and my parents were communists. Uh, I was born of a communist mother in a Nazi stately home. It's a, that's, um, it, that's, a, that's one. I know, there was a great story with um, Keith Richards talking about sort of the night he was born all around his childhood. They were sort of bombing 
the streets of yeah. London where he was, you know, and he was literally on, in, in his kind of cot at the time. So, but but actually you go back yeah. to, but going back to that period and forgetting the Keith Richards moment, but there were quite a lot of English aristocrats who were really sympathetic because there was a whole family. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brockett wasn't alone. No, because no, no, there, 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 there was a family of daughters, wasn't there, who were all... The Mitfords, yes. Oh, they... Well, the Mitfords were extraordinary because... Um, <laughs> One married a Mosley, you know, married an out-and-out British fascist. Yes. Another married a communist. Uh, and the third, I think, was in the middle. Yeah, Lib Dem, probably. Um, so yeah. <laughs> their, their Christmas get-togethers must have been fun. So uh, Indeed. Their, their secret Santas would have been fascinating, wouldn't they? Um. They would have been very, very strange. <laughs> so, then, so you were born... God, that was a great one. I like that. A communist born in a... In a in a Nazi stately home. So well, all that, I put all that story on my last album, not the present one. And the last album was um, uh, a double album of waltzes. Oh, nice. Good. Called Save Me The, Save Me the Waltz. Um, yeah, and you, you can see all of that on the website, and, or, or you can listen to it on, on it's streamed. It's on Spotify if you do that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and... Um, on, and, and that I have on vinyl, and it is it is very handsome on vinyl because being a double album, it's it's a, a, a gatefold uh, double album, you know, and it's real sixties artifact, a gatefold double album concept album. Oh, Roger Dean, Roger Dean territory. Yeah, I know. <laughs> how sixties can you get? I know. You could even um, you can even roll illegal substances on it, probably. You could. You could. You could. Um, and in there, I tell that story uh, because um, I was born in Lord Melbourne's bedroom uh, and next door was the ballroom. And the ballroom was the first place in Britain that the waltz was ever danced in Regency society because it was brought back from the continent uh, by uh, Lady Caroline Lamb who'd been hanging out with Byron, who was, uh, you know, a, a, a dodgy geezer. Um, and she came back, and she was very loopy, uh, and she got everybody to dance the waltz, which, when it first was danced, was considered absolutely scandalous, wicked, wicked dance, because all dances before that, you know, the quadrilles and um, shotiches and all those and the polkas were, 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 were all just... You just touched fingertips, you know, and sort of did like square dancing. Yeah. But you didn't hold you didn't hold your partner, and then suddenly you got the waltz, where you not only hold your partner close, but the man puts his leg in between the women's legs. Yeah, that's that, that's, uh, you know, that, that could that could lead to all sorts of problems. Because interestingly, yeah, well, absolutely, it could be sort of the the exchange of bodily. So limits. all of that story is uh, is on on the waltz album. Yeah. Right? I sort of relished that, that I was born in the room, next door to the room where the waltz was first danced. So it's, it's in my blood. It's in your blood. And because it's interesting, because I'd studied a bit of dance and also did some, and, and there was a kind of famous, a famous couple from 19... I don't know, 1910, I suppose, uh, Vernon and Irene Castle. Well, Vernon Castle came from Norwich, and he went to New York and married... Irene Castle, who was a society woman yeah. in New York, they developed. They were the they were the basically the it couple of of that period, and um, they 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 uh, basically 
I was going to say develop, but they started the Foxtrot. That was what their kind of fame was, and their, their life story. Oh, really? Was, their life story was made into a film with um, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, actually. But yeah, Vernon. So, so having it's kind of just before we go back to your career, but that that period yeah. of dance where people started to get deep down and touchy was really, like you said. I mean, we laugh at the idea of the waltz being this kind of scandalous thing, but actually, mm-hmm. you know, there was all these like the Foxtrot and and uh, various other. There was a whole sequence of dances. They called, referred to him as the animal dancers, which you know were just kind of quite silly, but were for the stab- establishment. You know, the, the literally the breakdown of society. It was like you know, it was because it was yeah, also yeah. originated, for, especially in America, from sort of the black kind of jazz scene, which was obviously like, oh my god, what are we doing? We're sort of you know, standards are slipping. Standards are definitely. So look, wait a minute. Be, so we got your birth there, which is good, and then. You, you know, what was your, you know, because you, you obviously have quite the education because you become a doctor, which is kind of mm. in, in that time. I mean, I didn't come to go to a school that people went became doctors. They mostly worked in the chicken factory or jeans factory or the farm. But you, you sort of obviously passed your 11 plus. I passed my 11 plus and I went to a, I, I, you know, I was raised in Camden Town, you know, and um, uh, went to a North London grammar school. Um, which was you know, educationally good, uh, and from there I got a place at Cambridge. And um, after leaving school and wandering off to the continent because I had to get away because the family was breaking up uh, and it was all getting a bit miserable, um, I actually ran away to Paris uh, and roughed it in Paris for a year. Um, and then came back and, and went to Cambridge and did uh, did medicine there. But was also in the footlights when I was in Cambridge. Right. Um, so, so were you sort of, I mean, that's quite, as a young person, you had a lot of confidence then. Mm, yes, no, David. Um, I was not very confident in uh, in meeting people. It was quite miserable in Paris. I was, you know, very... Reticent. I, I'm not the kind of person who can go up and say hello to people I don't know. Mm. Um, Could you speak French, so, though? Yeah. Wow. I learned good French while well, I was there. Okay, uh, yeah. I got, I got a job finally in a tourist agency. So I had to speak French to argumentative Parisians. Yeah. Um, but, so, yeah, I, I speak... The sound of my French is actually better than my vocabulary. Yeah. So did you um, did you start to sort of find yourself being drawn to that world that is the bohemian lifestyle, the poets, the artists, the, you know, people taking substances? I said, not in Paris, not before I went to Cambridge. Um, I smoked my first joint uh, in Cambridge. Uh, so in, um, although before that, um, when I was still at school um, and I got a Saturday job, the first drugs I ever took were actually speed. Right. It was amphetamines, but that was in the 50s. Mm. And that was uh, very prevalent. Um, and it was mother's little helper, you know. Yes. Um, uh, uh, so that you kind of thought, well, GPs prescribed amphetamines to women so they could slim so it must be you know it can't be dangerous yes this is true. Um, and then i got my second saturday job was in a chemist shop in camden town uh and at the end of the day i just reach into a huge winchester bottle full of five milligram 
dexamphetamine and grab a pocket load uh, and just um, drop 10 of them and jump on my bike and cycle to Herne Hill in 20 minutes. Well, yes, it does. It does. You know, as you would. <laughs> it, um, does, it does. So help. the first drug I knew, God help me, was, was amphetamine. It's an appalling drug. And in Cambridge, um, I did all my exams on speed. Right. You were a speed uh, as, a, as, a, as, as a lot of students did at that time. Yes. Well, you know, and it was easy, easy to get. You just go up to the university pharmacy, see Mr. Tatlow. Morning, Mr. Tatlow. Morning. Um, I'll have 150 Drinamil, please, which was Purple Hearts. Uh, I said, all right, that'll be six and sixpence. Thank you very much. Um, and off you go. Whoa. It was amazing. It was, it was a different, um, definitely a different time. But so, so go and just mention, you mentioned the footlights. What was yeah. that like at, at that particular period? Um, it was, it was really clubby. It was very male. Um, it was quite, uh, public school-ish. It was sort of based on that kind of public school clubby thing. I mean, there were people like me who weren't public school but that was the first time uh, being in Cambridge where I, I became very aware of that kind of class divide mm. um, uh, because the public school boys did throw their weight around a lot. Well, yes. Um, uh, and I was, I was lucky enough, I was in uh, John's uh, and I had the same rooms in third court for two years, which was unusual, uh, right on the river. I mean, beautiful rooms. And we're talking um, um, 17th century oak panelled rooms that we lived in, me and my mate. And it, he organised the uh, the Saturday night club, uh, and I did cabarets in it. Um, so I'd, I'd sing uh, and sing amusing songs, uh, and then a jazz band would play usually. Uh, and Cambridge was very good for jazz. Right, of um, Good, if a bit narrow-minded, but uh, trad jazz was it trad? No, no, modern. Modern, yeah. Oh, there was a big, there was a big. Um, was it a festival where the it all kicked off at a particular jazz festival where the trad jazz as the modern jazz jazz people just went into freeform fighting and stealing microphones from yeah. the BBC. Oh yeah. Yes, I can. Yeah, I can, I can believe it. It was. It was. Um, it begins with B. The festival, but I'll have to. Um, yeah, so you were at that time, you know, there was the beat generation, wasn't there? Jack Kerouac, there was kind of Ginsburg, there was, there was people like yeah. Lenny Bruce coming through, Lord Butley. Yep. I mean, there was a kind of a, a kind of a vibe, oh, yeah, wasn't yeah. there? They, and, and obviously, you had the jazz, you know, like the really cool jazz bebop. And well, stuff I was like very that. influenced by, by that Lenny Bruce, Lord Buckley, um, um, yes. and Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. Yes, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner, particularly, I loved. Yeah, um, but Lenny Bruce, I saw him Did you? at Peter Cook's oh. club. Yeah, well, I saw him. Peter Cook uh, made set up a club called The Establishment right. in, Greek, in Greek Street. And I actually played there. Um, I did a, a, a short season there yes. with two other people. Um, and I saw Lenny Bruce there. Yes, and did it... Um, <laughs> and was he amazing? He was amazing in, in the way he dealt with people and dealt with the audience. But he, uh, you know, he he was um, infamous for his bad language, for instance. Yes. So there'd be people 
in the audience who would come to goad him because they wanted to hear him say fuck. Oh. You know, <laughs> uh, yes. and, and words like that because he didn't hear a lot of that. Well, I mean, on stage, you didn't hear it. No. Um, and there was, uh, oh, there was a fantastic moment where he said, uh, uh, at one point, he said, uh, I, I, I got to drink this whiskey. He said, uh, he says, I, I, uh, uh, he says, I got this cough. He says, uh, uh, tell you the truth, I got bronchitis, but I tell folks I got TB. It sounds, it sounds sexier, you know. <laughs> why, why are you coughing? I got TB, baby. Uh, so he says, uh, bronchitis just sounds poor and Jewish. Uh, so, so he says, I got to drink a bit, you know. He said, and then he said, uh, hey, it's getting a bit hot and fetid in here. Maybe could we open the ventilators? Uh, and then some woman's voice came out and said, maybe it's you. And he swung round uh, in her direction and said, you cunt. You fucking cunt. He says, whenever you try and help people out, something like that, some cunt like you comes in and says, maybe it's you. You know. So she was outraged and she got up and left and the rest of the audience uh, applauded. <laughs> God. So she dealt with this, you know, she's really being shitty. Yes. Maybe it's you. <laughs> so I was very impressed at that. Well, absolutely. No, I mean, you know... Lenny because Bruce... this is into 1963, you know. Yes, I mean, as, um, what's it, Philip Larkin said, the 60s started in 63 with... Lady Chat Chatley and the first Beatles album, the paraphrase. Yeah. I can't quite remember it. But, yeah, um, and didn't finish really till 75. That's right. That's the one. The 60s dribbled into the 70s. Yeah, decades. And us, us going up to Suffolk yes. to get our heads together. That was all really part of a 60s movement still. It didn't stop until punk came in. No. This punk is... put an end to the 60s. Yes, it did actually, didn't it? Um, so... So, well, crikey, we've gone through the six. Uh, so, so when did you f first? I mean, when did you? So, in '76, you were there, Bungie, your first gig with Susie Cruz. Mm. Before that, you'd obviously been you'd done the the Cambridge. You'd been a full time doctor mm. at that stage. What was your specialist, by the way? Um, it was after a, an early bit of just general practice and um, having a kind of hippie clinic in Labrick Grove. Um, I discovered contraception, which was very much of the time, too, because it was the 60s where the pill uh, became available for women. And so for the first time, women had control over their own fertility um, and whether they were going to get pregnant or not. Um, and I was very drawn to that and thought that that was great. So in 71, before I, I went off to Canada and and uh, went out into the prairies for months and became a single-handed GP. I did my training uh, with the Family Planning Association. And when I did that, I thought, this is fantastic. I love this. Yes. This is really, really good work. So when I came back from Canada in 72, um, I joined a clinic called the Margaret Pike Centre, um, which which was women's sexual health care and contraception. Um and that's what I've done for the rest of my medical life. Right. Uh, I'm still technically on on the staff. 
I haven't yet retired, but I effectively over the last year haven't been in because uh, the, the clinic has been kind of closed and changed and 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 mutated into something it wasn't before uh, and has lost an awful lot of the spirit um, and the facilities that it had before. So it's a real shame. Yeah. Um, well, bit, but yeah. it's, that's, that's always what I've done. Yeah, and so so that was the early seventies. When did you start to have that kind of work-life balance of thinking the music's? Oh, know. right from the beginning, then, right from the early seventies, when I came back from Canada. By that time, I'd um, in sixty-nine, seventy, I'd met Graham Parsons, uh, become his doctor, um, and got influenced by him, and played with him, and. Uh, learnt country off him and realised that country was great music, which I hadn't known before at all. Mm. Um, and so all my writing and everything uh, focused around that. So having met him um, and played with him, then going to Canada into the middle of the prairies, where the only kind of music you heard was country music, and where every Saturday night I'd sit in and play with... Um, uh, a country band uh, at either a Norwegian or a Ukrainian wedding. Um, you know, I, I, I was completely turned over. So when I came back in 72, uh, I just wanted to play country music. Yeah. And, and... But still wanted to work as a doc. So one of the good things about doing uh, clinical uh, conception in a community setting was I could work part-time, which is why I said earlier that... Um, even when I moved up to Suffolk, I'd come down on a Tuesday, work Tuesday and Wednesday in London, and then come back. Um, and so from Thursday to Monday, I'd be uh, I'd be in Suffolk, yeah. and and I and at that time um, set up a band with Paul uh, after ha- having played at the May Fair, May Horse Fair yes. um, in Bungie. Um, because when so you... that, it, it was right from that point, and even before that, before I thought of Hank um, as Sam Hart, I was playing folk clubs and uh, uh, also playing with a guy, Mike Story. There's another picture of the two of us um, at one of the Barsham fairs. Yes. Um, and and we, we had a little group of people. Uh, uh, we had a band and played more singer-songwriter stuff. It hadn't kind of centred into country music quite so much. But by the time Hank came along, it was full country. Yeah, because I know that, um, God, uh, just going back, because you kind of slip in a name there, Graham, Graham Parsons. This is the, yeah. the famous Graham Parsons. So how did you... The famous... How did you find him? Did where? Well, you know, where, where did you well, meet him? Well, at that time, I, I mentioned the hippie clinic. I, I'd been doing a hippie clinic for about 18 months. Yes. We got closed up by the authorities because they didn't like the fact that we were prescribing cannabis oh, right. yes. Um, yes. as a political action, yeah. basically, uh, trying to say we think cannabis is safer than alcohol. Uh, plus, the guy who started the clinic and who I joined uh, was very interested in helping people off heroin, Yes, helping, helping junkies. And he had a way of getting people through the five days of withdrawal without hideous cold turkey. A uh, very simple method. Um, so we did that, and then he'd give them tincture of cannabis, which you could legally as a doctor at that yeah. time, 
as a way of getting high. It doesn't in any way replace heroin, and it isn't the same kind of high at all. Alcohol is closer to heroin uh, than cannabis is, which is why you see so many junkies will get off smack uh, and then become alcoholic right. and, and swing between alcohol, between booze and heroin. Um, but it was it was also a kind of anti-authoritarian thing and joining with them saying, hey, here's a way of getting high. Sorry it isn't smack, but you've got to be off that because it ain't no good for you. Yes. And it's um, fucking you up big time. But this will be much safer. And at least you'll get a bit high. Yes. Um, it is swings around. As yeah. it happens, you got very, you got very high. Um, and I was reminded of a time uh, by a man called Tony Visconti, who um, uh, became a very famous uh, record producer. Yes, David Bowie. Uh, and in in '68, uh, when I was still um, uh, still doctoring, um, I did a single. Um, uh, as Boeing Duveen. I did a single of Jabberwock. I set the Lewis Carroll poem to music. You can go on um, on YouTube and, and, and hear it. It's very much of its time. I'm playing sitar on it. Yes. Um, and uh, it's very wild. Uh, and Tony produced it. Uh, and, and, and it came out on Parlophone and has become one of the top 100 psychedelic singles of all time. Um, and this was 18 months before I met Graham. Now, once the hippie clinic was closed, I then worked on my own, and basically I was a rock and roll doctor. You know, I was a long-haired hippie like everybody else. Uh, so musicians could come to me, um, and I was one of them, you know. Yeah. But I was a doctor. So... They could they could tell me, oh, I've got this really sore nose, you know, and uh, it's running all the time, sometimes it bleeds. And I can say to them, well, what the fuck are you sticking up it? A lot of cocaine, you twat. Of course it's bleeding, and you know, um, just lay off the cocaine uh, and you'll be a lot better. Right. Uh, and so on and so on and so on. But also I was very interested in homeopathy uh, and, and I saw people uh, for non-drug things. Yes. And I didn't prescribe any drugs. I mentioned speed before, but I wouldn't prescribe any of that to anybody. I let the straight doctors do that, and I was much more interested in health. Uh, anyway, uh, Keith Richards I'd seen before this, um, before Graham, uh, to see his, his son, his new baby, that he had when he was with Anita Pallenberg. Wow. Uh, and he and Anita had Marlon. Uh, and Marlon was poorly, uh, and they called on me, and I looked after Marlon and got him better, or he got better. Uh, and then one day Keith sent Graham up to see me because Graham's wife was poorly. Yes. Blimey, you, so were, you he, were the rock and roll god. I'm amazed. It sounds like a Little Feet album, doesn't it? I think they did have something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was a rock and roll doctor. You were the rock and roll um, doctor. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and, and, and a, lot, a lot of those big guys, the Grateful Dead, were my patients. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, Graham came up with Gretchen. I saw his wife, and as I saw her, he picked up my guitar and played a song called An Empty Bottle of Broken Heart and You're Still on My Mind. 
which is an old George Jones song. Yeah. Uh, and that completely turned me over. Uh, and that was the point where I suddenly saw that there was soul in country music. Because up until that point, I hated country music and thought it was shit. Yes. Well, Although, I have to say, I was listening to the Burrito Brothers. Uh, but the clever thing that Graham and the Burritos did was they kind of managed to convince us that they were sort of rock and roll because they were a rock and roll lifestyle. Yes. Um, but what they were playing was absolutely pure, quite ragged, honky-tonk country music. Yeah, well, I suppose I'd grown up, my parents, who were in their 80s now, but they they loved country. I mean, I suppose my dad started with people like Elvis and then also like people like... Um, Oh God, Therese Brewer. But then he got into people like, um, oh God, all the kind of cliche, you know, like from Jim Reeves to, um, oh God, all those kind of very cliched country artists from that 60s period, I suppose, Crystal Girl mm-hmm. and people like that. There were so many of them. There were a lot. And so I was in Flick, Boxcar Willie, cheesy, queasy. Yes. Oh. God, he was, box, awful. he was not good, and yeah, like I mentioned, he, Reeves, uh, he was uh, so that he was, was very popular in England. They oh, loved him in England. They the, loved the him. country western fans loved the, him. The novelty, I hated him. the novelty country artist. So it was a long time before yeah. I realised, and it was kind of John Peel introduced me to a lot of alt country in this sort of more the eighties yeah, and nineties. Yeah. I suddenly suddenly had a bit of a oh yes, I really like the Wilco bro. Anyway, um, Wilco. Um, so that was that was. So then, as as the cracky. So did were you also you know like people you mentioned Tony Visconti? Did people like because you obviously had an artistic bend, did you sort of also come across people like Bowie who were starting up in their kind of artist? Well, yeah, no, Tony um, um, reminded me, I was, I've, I've been in touch with him recently, finally, after years and years and years, uh, and he'd done an interview where he talked about a night where um, he and Bowie and I, uh, we were hanging out, um, and took loads and loads of tincture of cannabis and got massively off our faces. And we all went off to see um, 2001 Space Odyssey. And it was after that, that you know, later that night, that um, Bowie started writing, writing Space Oddity. Right. It all makes sense. And I think cannabis, that teacher of cannabis, seemed to be quite a popular thing at the time, didn't it? Because it was quite organic. It was. It was very organic. Yeah, and and you, you know, the problem with eating um, is you, you, once you've eaten it, you've eaten it. So it was very easy to overdose, to get very, very stoned, to get too stoned. So I was living in Soho at the time, um, and we'd go round uh, to the local, uh, the Cinerama, uh, the Casino Cinema, which was in Old Compton Street. And... Um, They'd always have a Saturday night show, which is when Bowie and uh, Tony and I went to see uh, 2001, um, the, the midnight showing. Uh, and if you took tincture, you, instead of being stoned when you went to the, the, the show and then gradually it wears off, you got more and more stoned as you were sitting there. So there were times where you had to be peeled out of the front seats, where it was always front row where you'd be enveloped by the huge screen yes um <laughs> yes. so we were peeled out um and yeah and that apparently tony said was the inspira- inspiration and then um bowie um nobody liked uh, space oddity 
No. And he wasn't sure of it too, because up until then he was much more kind of folk rock and was playing his 12-string guitar a lot. Yes. Hermione. Um, it was Hermione, wasn't it? His love of his Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, there were... A man who, who was actually my publisher when I did Jabberwock, David Platt, um, of Bucks Music, uh, he, he encouraged Bowie and said, that's great, you should record that. Yes. And, yeah. and the rest is history. Did you, I mean, just before get, get moving, did you sort of come across the, the sort of the, that kind of transformation with that, that kind of, as the 60s were, you know, kind of going slightly from bad to worse, you know, in the sort of clearing up phase of everyone sort of dying and you had, you know, Woodstock and Altamont that yeah. really didn't go terribly well. And, you know, and I'd sort of spoke, spoke to, was it Brian... Miles, who had been part of that whole sort of scene in the underground. And I did an interview and I said, well, what happened, you know, towards the end and the early 70s? And he said... You interviewed Miles? Yes. And he said, yeah. we, we were just all really tired. We just, we'd had it. You know, by then, we couldn't, you know, we just kind of wanted to go to bed and, and sort of do something else. <laughs> and, and it was like, because he, he had been so... Him and Joe Boyd and everybody, they'd had that zeitgeist moment yeah. in the 60s, hadn't they? From, you know, there yeah. was that guy Hoppy as well, and they did that sort of yeah. experience at Ali Pali in 67, the Summer of Love, yeah. Yeah. the 14-hour Technicolor Dream at the Ali Pali, and, you know, things, things right. that was the highlight. And then after that, it was getting messy, and then obviously... That you know, though that 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 kind of world had slightly moved on, and then you had the new scene coming in, and and Bowie, you know, though his sixties work is there, and it's probably not that good to listen to actually. He definitely had a transformation, didn't he, at that point of suddenly seeing something different happening. Yeah, you got to a point where you had to work on it, you know, and that was one of the things about Acid, was because um, yes. I went to that. I went to the the twenty four hour Technicolor Dream. Um, actually, went up with Rick uh, Rick Wright of the Floyd. Um, we drove up together on acid, um, <laughs> uh, and 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 did that. You know, and uh, they had the uh, uh, the Helter Skelter yes. that you can go down, uh, and that was you know very very symbolic. You do it again and again and again. Every time you went down the hell skelter, you were reborn, man. You were reborn back into the world, you know, from the great height where you were watching this maelstrom and this madness underneath you. And then you'd get onto the slide and woo, and then you're back into the madness. Well, yeah, and you climb up again. Uh, all of that is great. Acid was great. Uh, I, I was delighted. I'm always thankful I took acid. Um, but... It would give you a, you, you, it would open a window for you, um, without all the kind of work. You you would have revelations. That whole sort of thing of seeing God was absolutely right. You did, but that was the sort of thing that people would become hermits for forty years and work at, um, and become ascetics, and really work on to get those visions. And here you were getting it for free. Yes. It was just and un, and unprepared. So, hence, you could you could have bad trips, you know, and you could have the horrors because you weren't prepared for what you were going to see when you opened uh, opened the doors. The doors of perception. Um, yes, this is true. The doors of perception. Um, so, Miles. Well, if you talked to Miles, you would have got a really good 
overview of that. He's a very good man. Yes, Inca, um, book, Inca um, Books, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, International Indica, Times. In, Indica Books. Yeah, International Times. That was the fundraiser, wasn't it? So, yeah. so as you we trucked into the eighties, you you sort of you do manage to do to have a little bit of a transformation because you get picked up by the kind of slightly indie world, don't you? And you were doing benefits because because the eighties, which is kind of probably more my decade, though you know I mm. I, I mean from the early seventies I was obsessed with you know pop music and the top of the pops and the you know yeah. the, the you know the charts on the Sunday evening at seven o'clock or something and and but then you know the eighties came along and you know by then. I got a bit older, and and you were sort of appearing at lots of benefit gigs, playing with people like Billy Bragg and the Frank Chickens, which yeah. was very exciting. Yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. And it was all getting political, and we had Red Wedge. Oh uh, yes, the Great Red Wedge, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. And there was there was very much a political political uh, sensibility about it, which was great. Um, and it was in '84 where we um, appeared at the GLC gig which was during the miners' strike. Um, and the miners' strike and, and Thatcher politicised uh, a lot of people who hadn't been political before. Um, and uh, it was at this gig, which was down on Jubilee Gardens, right by um, um, the GLC headquarters um, in County Hall, right opposite Houses of Parliament, where we got beaten up. Um, this is the infamous gig where we, we, we came on stage and after a couple of numbers, uh, a dozen uh, drunk skinheads who who come to this whole thing thinking, right, they're going to bust it up because it sounds a bit lefty Definitely, to us. Yeah. Um, and they jumped on stage and they smashed our instruments and, and, and beat us up uh, in front of 20,000 people. Um, and we survived it, you know. We, no, none of us got too broken by it, and no hands were broken. No. BJ got a cut in his face, but uh, most of us survived. Yeah, how did you... I mean, because obviously you you being the elder statesman with these kind of young... the young angry kids, and I, I don't know who mm. else was on the bill, but, you know, there was like people like Paul Weller and Jimmy Somerville and... You know Tom yeah. Robinson and, and lots of angsty poets as well. So did you did they sort of hold you in some sort of like, well, he is the the wise one in the back? <laughs> no, because uh, David, I wasn't really that elder. I was uh, by then I would have been forty three. Yes, I know. Now it'd be like you were. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I don't think there was that sort of sense at all. I'm getting much more of that sort of legendary stuff now. Yeah. Because I am really old. Um, but then it was, you know, you just... I started late. You know, I started the first Wangford band before we became professional in 1980. I'd have been um, 35 at yes. Bungie May Horse Fair. I know. So I was already getting on, you know. I wasn't in the first flush of youth. But it was interesting because I did an interview with Richard Strange from The Doctors of Madness and he was like, uh, they they kind of hit big in 75 and, and, you know, all the punks came to see, well, the potential, you know, people who were going to be punk came to see him. And he said, we were two years too early, you know, like by then when punk hit in 77, he was like 25 and it's like, yeah, he'd missed it, you know, and, and you know, like all the other kids are like in their teens, 
own late teens or early 20s. But he just, you know, he, he said that, you know, we were just a bit too early. So with with a lot of people and getting either success or, or not quite getting success, it's often a lot to do with timing, isn't it? But you've managed, because of your musical world, not to really have to follow those kind of fashions so much. I think you're right. I think it's because of the musical world. And I think that uh, the fact of playing country um, is more, is less tied to time. Yes. Um, it, 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 can, it can last longer, you know. You don't have to be young. Um, there's a lot of interesting things about country that draw me to that. And that is one of the things, you know. It, uh, whereas being an old rocker, there's some something slightly damning about it, uh, and an old punk rocker, yes, definitely. <laughs> that'd, be a, that'd be a young person, thing. but yes. an old country singer, hey, come on. Yes, you know? it's the blues, I mean, isn't it? Willie Willie Nelson is eighty six or eighty seven now. Yes, and he's still at it. He is definitely still um, at it. And how did you, because obviously, as we all sort of have to dodge these little moments that come up, you know, and myself included, you you know, you have kind of ups and downs on the health front, which kind of always are kind of very sobering. You also had your moment, didn't you, last year? Uh, what moment was that? Did, uh, did you have a heart attack? Oh, no, that was about eight years ago. Right, on really. Eight, eight or nine years ago, that was... Uh... Uh, yeah, just when I was 70, had a heart attack um, and, and, and had stents put in. And uh, in an earlier era, I would have died, but I didn't, um, which is great. Yes. Uh, and then since then, I've had other, other things. Um, so I've, I've got kind of multi-morbidity, um, uh, multi we would call it. Uh, the, the body is basically collapsing, uh, but the spirit is roaring with laughter in the middle of it. <laughs> Which is always is a good combination to have. And obviously, yeah. you've, you've built up an enormous body of work. And, and one thing that a lot of artists have really kind of not held on to is things like publishing and writing. How did you, how did you manage to sort of navigate that? Because you've been on indie labels and then you've been on the occasional sort of quite biggish labels and and obviously you've got a lot of work out there a bit like the greatest english poet martin newell who's huh. who's got a phenomenal body of work have have you managed to sort of keep track of it all and 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 keep ownership well um partly because nobody wanted to buy it you know uh, um yes uh, some of the albums were put out like the single was put out by parlophone um uh, Evangeline put one of my albums out. Uh, Beggar's Banquet put one of my albums out. Yes. Rough Trade put one of my albums out. Um, but the rest of them I put out myself. So that's Sincere Sounds and the new album. Did you did you get that link? We, we did, and I've been playing it. And um, yes. And oh, it, oh and good, you've been able to download it. I did. That. Well, I, I haven't, haven't done that quite haven't quite learned how to do that well i have learned but i haven't done it i was just kind of playing it on soundcloud so again when did you when did you oh, right. well, when... that's fine you can play it on soundcloud so when did you start record writing and recording this what your 10th your 10th album my, my troublesome 10th album your yes. troublesome 10th yes yeah um i've been the songs on there uh over the last two years um and all of them written over in Ireland. Uh, 
where uh, and I think I sent you the link so you can see the uh, the cover as well. Um, and the cover is is lot of views of the house in Ireland. So the one with Rancho Wangford, that's the little house, uh, and it's right on the seashore. So uh, the long picture of the sunrise uh, is the view from the house over the bay um, uh, where the sun rises in the morning. Um, and that's the best place for me to write. I should be able to, I'm, I'm getting a bit fed up at the moment, I should be able to be writing now. Um, but there seems to be something about this lockdown which has locked down um, my creative creativity. Yes. You know, I've, I've sat and I've played, but nothing has really come yet. Now, maybe I just haven't applied myself enough because this should be ideal for writing and creating, you yeah. would think. Yes. And I, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd wondered that when a couple of weeks ago when this all started, wondering anybody yeah. who, you know, like... I was thinking of writers and novelists thinking if you're halfway through that book and this has happened, how that would affect the the artist and, and sort of trying to get it finished when something like this is kind of... which is so unusual and has never happened yeah. particularly before, how that would affect somebody trying to get it complete, really. I don't know. It's affected me in the sense that I've not been able to be very creative. Um, but I won't. I won't sort of take that line down. I'll still have cracks at it because it's going to go on for a while yet. Yes. So I, I must use this time because I want to do another album, and I've got. I've got another. Uh, we've got plans. I've been playing with uh, another guy who's around uh, Norwich a lot. I don't know if you've come across Noel Dashwood. Noel Dashwood. No, I haven't come across Noel Dashwood. He's a wonderful dobro player. I did a little gig for um, uh, a friend, Henry. Henry Late has, has a bookshop called The Book Hive. Oh, yes. Uh, which is a really nice bookshop. One of those bookshops that when you, you, you look at the books that are laid out, I don't know how they do it, but you want to read every one of them. Yes. They all look great, you know. Um, anyway, he's been open for 10 years and he had a celebration at the art centre uh, a few months ago and I did a, I did a spot with me, uh, Steve, uh, Steve Arlene, yeah. uh, big, big Steve, and Noel. Noel also plays with Jose with the Vagabond. Right. But but also plays on his own, um, and he is a wonderful dobro player, uh, a very fine singer too, and plays really good harmonica. So we've been playing together, and I'm hoping uh, we may get something done, uh, and might record something quite rootsy. Yes, because the, the the new album, as you've heard, is kind of quite carefully produced. Um, and definitely studio, and I want to have something that's just more thrown together. I remember well. when Wilco Johnson thought he only had less than a year to um, live. He quickly mm. thought, well, um, I think he worked with Roger Dalt 
factory. And I think he just li- thought, look, we can't, we can't yeah. get, we can't get Brian Eno in and and faff about here. We're just going to have to get this down because I'm going to die soon. And it, and yeah, he did one of those albums that felt like it was done in with a certain amount of urgency, which I guess sometimes can be quite good when you've got that deadline that you're yeah. thinking. So is that one of the issues you have at the moment that the the kind of deadline is a little bit difficult to focus on? I don't know, David. I don't. Um, well, maybe there is no deadline at the moment. Um, and maybe that's it. But, well, plus, I can't play with any of these people at the moment. I can only play completely in isolation. Yes. Um, but that's okay, because in Ireland I play in isolation. Well, now and then I'll go... Uh, that's not true, because I'll go out to a pub and I'll play a session. Um, and play with other people, and I can't do that at the moment. So I guess it's the it's the totality of the isolation that somehow gets through to me, yeah. and probably does get through to uh, a lot of other people. I don't know how people are coping uh, in in a creative, creative terms. There's probably people out there who are, you know, squirrelling away and and really doing it, getting getting at it. Yeah, so it's a tricky one. And just last question: what would what would you say to a an 18-year-old self starting out, if you were able to have said something back then when you were just starting and you thought, oh, that would have been a really good thing to have been told. But you've learnt it over the decades. I just wonder what that would be. I don't. That's rather like um, asking what is your favourite whatever. What's your favourite I never have a (laughs) favourite. It would be a range of great ones. Um, <laughs> no, I just wondered uh, if, there, if there was like, oh, you know, because a lot of people said, oh, lay off the booze, enjoy yourself more, you know, read the document before you sign it. Those, kind, I mean, most of them are quite cliche. All, all, all of the above, sure, you know. Um, uh, don't believe what people tell you. And also don't believe what you tell yourself. Oh. What do you mean by that? Well, for me... Um, it's to do with um, self-confidence. The thing about singing, for instance, is you have to have confidence when you sing. Yes. And if you haven't got it, it's much more difficult. And if you haven't got it, your 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 throat will actually... <clears throat> Sorry, as it's doing now, I'm just going to take a sip of tea. Yes. I've been talking too much. Um your throat will will uh, kind of tighten up uh, and you um, uh, your, your your voice will get thinner uh, so without the confidence it will not sound so good so you have to have kind of confidence in yourself to do it so I guess it's it sounds really like an old chestnut David you know uh, don't believe what you tell yourself but believe in yourself Yes. Because you tell yourself, oh, I'm crap, you know, I can't sing for toffee. Um, don't listen to that, just do it. And do you, um, just last, I mean, it's interesting because you might mention Mike Story earlier, who, who alongside someone called James, what's his name, Lascelles, wasn't Lascelles. it? Lascelles, yeah. who, who I think was That's the that. 18th in line for the uh, King of England or something bizarre. Uh, 17. Seventeen, was he? Yeah, he was. Yeah, it might be, might be going down. But could be down, going down. He might be. I think he's 
top 10 by by the end of the year. But, um, I mean, they had a definitely a jazz doodly kind of vibe, more than the country, yes. didn't they? Yeah. I mean, did you ever feel like you wanted to do an exploration of a jazz kind of odyssey, or was it always country that you your heart was set on? Um, country was a sort of revelation for me um, in the, the simplicity of it and the directness. And actually, you know, after we mentioned people like uh, Boxcar Willie and uh, a lot of those people that a lot of the British country western fans liked who were deeply dishonest, a lot of those people. Um, but the country music itself is actually... it's. A very honest music. Yes. You know, it does tell stories about real people and about the. Even if you pick uh, something like Stand By Your Man, which seems like the cheesiest, worst, most politically incorrect piece of advice, certainly in terms of women's lib. But, you know, songs like that, uh, the singer is joining with women who are having a really difficult time. Yes. And and, and is is sympathising with, with that. So, I mean, there's, country music will sing about stuff that no other music will sing about. So, for instance, I'll do a song. John Prine chose this song too. It's a, it's a George Jones song. And Prine did it. Uh, and I do it too. Called um, Let's Invite Them Over. Um, and it was a huge hit in 63. Um, when were you born? Was that about the time you were born? 64. Oh, you were born 64. Okay, well, the year That's before you were born. Yes. You know, um, and this is a song about wife swapping. So given the kind of mentality you would imagine of the sort of audience in the southern states uh, and the country audience... You, you you wonder that why a song about wife swapping would become popular amongst all those Baptist Bible thumpers. Um, very bizarre. But there you go. Uh, there's a song about wife swapping. Um, so I celebrate that as, as country can deal with anything. Yes. Now jazz, jazz is a different thing. Um, and I was put off jazz by the Cambridge jazz lot because rather like some of the early uh, folkies, they were very narrow-minded in that, as far as they were concerned, jazz was the only music worth listening to. Everything else was sub-jazz. And if it didn't come up to the level uh, that jazz was at, it wasn't worth listening to. So I had big arguments when I was at Cambridge, because I loved Ray Charles. Ray Charles was my huge hero. When I, uh, he was my first... Re Ray Charles and the Everly Brothers. Right. The Everly Brothers because of the harmonies, uh, and Ray Charles because of the soul, and that fantastic raw voice he had. Um, but in Cambridge, they didn't like Ray Charles because they thought he didn't play interesting enough notes... So they only liked people like Horace Silver because they were slightly more modern. And I thought, this is shit. I mean, you can't, you can't recognise soul when it smacks you in the face. 
But I think so, if, you, if you fast I forward... Had an, I, had, I had a big issue with the jazz people, which I've now got over, and I'm back to listening to jazz, and I love jazz. Yes, I know. I think it's a bit like prog rock. I think there, there is something about it being incredibly clever or complicated, and probably well, a bit, that's right, a bit yeah. elitist, I guess. It's quite an elitist little thing. It's it? much easier to write a clever, complicated song than it is to write a simple song. Yes. It's much more difficult to write a simple song, which is why people like Hank Williams were so phenomenal. that They could write these songs where each line would have six syllables and would tell stories and would just spot on. Mm. So, I mean, if you say, what would you say to you as the 18-year-old? Uh, keep it simple might be one of the things. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, and just to sort of go back to that that iconic photograph of you and Susie. Do you still have that guitar that you were playing on that picture? What does it have? Hank Wangford on it? No, it looks like an electric guitar. It looks. Um, you probably think that doesn't narrow. Yes. Um, well, if it wasn't electric guitar, it was probably a Gretsch, and I have got it. Um, but I did have Hank Wangford put on the fingerboard. In, in Mother of Pearl. Okay. Oh. And uh, I bought I bought it in Kessinland. God, I don't know. You'll have to. You have in, to. In, in a, have you in got a junk a, shopping? Have you got a copy of the Sun in the East on your shelves? Um. I have had a copy. Mm-hmm. Hold on. Oh, well, look, I'll just have to... I'll photograph it and yeah. send you a copy, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just, just to check that that's the one. Yes, um, no, because it, it's kind of funny, because on that page, you, you know, you've got yourself there, you've got the Ivy Brothers, you've got Blows a Bell on, on stilts, and also Lowell Coxhill on saxophone. So Lowell Coxhill, yeah. And you had the amazing Third Ear Band. There was a woman in that which used to be... Um, yeah. I can't remember her name now, but um, yes, yeah, there was a lot of kind of... Well, there you go. I played a gig with the third-year band at the Queen Elizabeth Hall. Yes. I'm playing sitar. Blimey. And um, God, I did an interview with, um, the wom- with the woman who was in it, which I can't remember her name now, but um, that's a memory for you. Now, just last question. Uh-huh. One of the all-time great songs, Waylon Jennings, Are You Sure Hank Done It This Way? Is that one that yeah. gets the thumbs up? Is that one that gets what? Is that do you get the thumbs up with Waylon Jennings doing a track called Are You um, Sure? Yes, with with reserve. Um, There's a guy called Alan Tyler who's a very good singer songwriter, um, who has a band called the Rockin' Birds. Oh yes, who I commend to you, and he's got a lovely baritone voice, um, and Waylon is his big hero. Just as for me, George Jones is my big hero in country. Yeah. To me, nobody has a voice like George Jones. And to Alan, nobody has a voice like Waylon. Um, uh, I was never a huge Waylon fan. But that's because 
I loved George so much. And I probably loved George so much because Graham loved George so much. Right. Uh, and part of the getting to know Graham was being introduced to George Jones. And Graham was completely obsessed with George. Uh, so for 10 years, I could listen to nobody else but George Jones. Right. It took me 10 years to get past George Jones and then be able to listen uh, to Ernest Tubb and to Waylon and to Willie and, to, you know, yes. Merle, Merle Haggard. Now, for me, Merle is is, is much greater songwriter and singer than, than Waylon. Right, yes. Merle Haggard is an absolutely phenomenal writer. Yeah, my God. It's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 great, great song. But it's a great song. It's and, a, and, and he, you know, like Cash, um, they, they both had a way of doing songs. And you always know it's Waylon. It, that rhythm, that way of picking, that kind of, the feel to his songs. You knew where you were. It's the same thing with Ernest Tubb. You know where you were with Ernest Tubb. Uh, except Ernest Tubb would sing pretty out of tune. Ernest Tubb sang very flat, but he didn't care and had a wonderful band, uh, the Texas Troubadours. Um, and so here's Ernest warbling away flat, but you knew where you were. Yes. And he'd sing these simple, direct songs. Uh, Merle sang absolutely in tune and just beautifully. I'll, I'll, I'll commend one Merle Haggard song to you, which is called um, Holding Things Together. Well, I'm going to check it out, Things Together. Do check out. It's, it's, uh, I mean, you may not like it. Um, holding things together ain't no easy thing to do. The job of raising children, it's a job made for two. You know, it's about being a one a one parent family amazing gosh that's um, well, well no I've, I've got i've got a lot to and go then, research uh, and then um because alice the wife has left and it's uh it's the kids it's the daughter's birthday so he's given her a present but signed it love from mom you know so depending on which side of the fence you are you can say oh that is really maudlin country crap or Wow, he really hit the nail on the head there. Yes. I think it's an absolutely beautiful song and really moving. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, I'll be checking out. Look, well, Hank, thank you ever so much for your time. And um, what... Yes, nice edit in there. Um, we then have a bit more of a chat, but um, you don't really need to know any more, do you? And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview with Hank Wangford. Um, thank you for listening. If you still are, I thought, well, I was quite gripped by it. Um, and like I said, he's got a new album that's come out uh, this year, 2020. It's titled Holy Holy. Um, do check it out. And uh, like I said, he has got a very good website. So just Google Hank Wangford and uh, it all will be revealed. Anyway, thank you a lot. Um, also, if you want to contact me for some random reason, who knows why, um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show, you'll find it. And also I've um, archived and podcast all these interviews and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. 
So check them out. Anyway, stay safe. Thank you again. Take care.